Well, good morning. I'm Rick's brother, in case you haven't figured that out. My name is Dave. I'm here with Linda, my wife, and my daughter, Sarah. And uh, it's a privilege to be with you this morning to step in for my brother. I'll cry. Don't worry about it. That's okay. Swedish people don't normally cry, but I do. You know, the memories. Um, if you're a ministry family, and, and we are. My dad was a pastor, my brother's a pastor, and, and I've been 40-plus years at Silver Birch Ranch. Or, you, you see a lot of sorrow. My dad uh, had heart attacks many years ago. And I've struggled with my heart. And my brother's always been there. Now he's got a son-in-law struggling with his heart. And the report's good. The report's good. Uh, while we were there yesterday, he began to, the, the, the cardiologist was talking to us, and he began to respond, and, and they're not really concerned that he won't come back mentally. They're, they think that's going to work. And now they're working on the cause of the heart attack and the fever and the pneumonia, which is not all that unusual, I guess, for, for all that he's gone through at this point. And uh, I know that my brother would love to give all of you a hug and say thank you for your support. So I'll say that for him. I won't give you all a hug, but I'll, I'll say that for him. And uh, he appreciates all that you mean to him. And even in this tremendous time of struggle, he's thinking of you. He's thinking of his son, his daughter, his son-in-law, their family, their grandchildren, and you. And this was a very important Sunday to him that this was taken care of when... Um, I communicate him at first. The first thing I told him is, you shouldn't speak Sunday. I'll run down there. I'll come down and do it for you. It reminded me of the time when my dad had his first heart attack and my brother changed his school and everything else and moved back to take care of him and to make sure his church kept going. You know, it's kind of like the old football thing. It's the next man up. Uh, This one went down. Got to have somebody else step up. And honestly, God has used donkeys to speak for him. So if you just listen, and you listen to God's Spirit, you can learn from anybody. And in fact, I often think if a donkey would speak to you, that you probably would listen better than if I speak to you, because that would be so amazing. Um, The world of pain is real, and sorrow is real. And what I wanted to talk to you about this morning is actually the benefits of sorrow. There's a benefit to sorrow. And and in a culture where we run from sorrow, we we run from pain, we often don't understand the benefits of it and the importance of it. If if we keep dismissing things in life that, that cause pain, we're missing out on one of the great lessons that God gives us. Here's the idea. Jesus was called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And you have to ask yourself, why? It seems to me like the more knowledge you have, the more you understand, the more you see things in life, the more sorrow you're demanded to bear. And God knows everything, so there had to be sorrow there. Can you imagine God looking at me and, and, and looking and understanding why he created me, how he created me, all the good stuff that he meant for me, and seeing me walk away from that? When he understands completely what I could be? How in the world could he be joyful about that? 
Now, how he deals with that, I don't know. He's God, and I'm not, and I don't understand how you can be everywhere all the time and know everything. And I, 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 in fact, at the, the youth club that, that my wife and I work at, uh, we work with the 8- to 10-year-old kids, and almost every week I ask them, you know, um, do you have to understand something for it to be true? And the answer is no, you don't have to understand it. Because God is beyond our comprehension. It's interesting, though, that the more knowledge, the more we understand, the more we think, the more we love, the more pain is involved. I tell young people who are uh, in a dating relationship and maybe thinking about marriage one day, and they say, what advice can you give me? I said, well, one of the things I'll tell you for sure, if you're going to love much, you're going to hurt much. There is no way to separate the two. And what's going to happen down, this, in, down the road for you is that if you're not willing to hurt much, then you will never be able to love much. I mean, there are things in, in life that we can't imagine. I can't imagine our, our nephew Scott, at his age and in his shape, having a heart attack. I can't imagine our niece, Kara, doing CPR on him in a bedroom in the middle of the night. Now, if you didn't love, you didn't care. So you got, two, you got two ways you can go here. You can either love and be hurt, or you can guard yourself from hurt and sorrow and not love. But you can't have it both ways. So you see, it isn't pain that we need to run from. It's love that we have to run to. And in that love, there's going to be pain and there's going to be sorrow and there's no way to get out of it if you're going to love people. It's interesting, as I look at Christianity, Christianity is not a passive faith. It's not something we just end up with. If we're going to love God, if we're going to love him with all our heart and our soul and our mind, if we're going to do that, just like any other loving relationship, we need to set up the environment in our life to do that. If I were to tell you I love my wife very deeply, but you know what, we never talk, and I make sure we don't have to talk, and you know, I always read the paper, and I set up the environment so that we don't communicate, we don't share our life together, we don't, and I keep telling you how invaluable she is to me. I, I, I go out to dinner with all these other ladies, by myself with them. I spend as little time as possible with my wife. Now, don't ever take this recording and put it out of context, please. And then I tell you how valuable my wife is to me. You would look at me and say, you're crazy. She's not valuable to you. I can only imagine as God looks at the church and we talk about how wonderful he is, and we sing songs about how great he is, and we don't set up the environment in our lives so that we can actually spend time with him. In Jeremiah 4.3, it says, For thus says the Lord to men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Break up your fallow ground. So often in the Bible, there's illustrations of farming illustrations, and these farming illustrations are so meaningful. You see, I can come here as a speaker and I can read God's word to you and I can tell you what I'm thinking God's word is saying. And, and often, perhaps, you have sat in this environment and you've heard somebody speak. And a half an hour later, you're not going to be able to tell what he said. 
It's never going to affect your life. It's never going to make a change in your life. You are not going to change whatsoever, even though you sat here week after week after week. The reason is, is that the ground that the seed is falling on is hard. It's never been worked up. See, we don't, we don't come with the idea that there's something in my life that God wants to speak to me about. We don't do that, so we're not ready for it when it comes. What, what, what God is saying is you need to break that up. You need, you need to work the soil in your life, the circumstances in your life, so that when the word is presented, when the seed comes to you, it has somewhere to go. It has something to grip. It is so important for us to understand our personal responsibility in preparing for the message. One of the great things about going through times that are difficult, whether it be in the hospital or other times in life, is that it forces you to rethink what you're doing and where you're going and what you're thinking. God often uses these illustrations in Matthew 13. He said, and you know the, the, the story of, of the soils. He sowed some seeds fell along a path and birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately sprang up since they had no depth of soil. Um, immediately sprang up since they had no depth of soil, but the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. And you see the example that goes, you know, if we want to be people who are God's people who are learning, who are growing, who are changing. We need to set the environment up in our personal lives so that can happen. Our culture does way too much wasting of mind and energy, hardening the soil. You know what we keep doing? We keep going listening to people and things we already believe in, so it just gets harder and harder and harder. If somebody comes with another idea or another thought or even the Holy Spirit is trying to convict us of something, it can't grab us because the soil is so hard. We already believe that so much. You see, we tend to surround ourselves only with people that we agree with. And that soil just keeps getting harder and harder and harder. I love when the scriptures say, search me, O God, and know my heart, because I don't even know my own heart, and you need to tell me the things that I need to work on. Positioning yourself so that God can work in your heart and in your life. Our personal responsibility, our intentionality, when I go into the book of Isaiah, and you might think I'm bouncing around, and I am, because I'm, I'm going in a theme here to try and understand my personal responsibility to both embrace what sorrow brings to me and use it for what God intends it to be used for. And that's not an easy thing to talk about, because what we do in this country is try and get rid of sorrow at all costs. We do not want to be people who live in sorrow. We do not understand the definition of joy. When my dad did die, he did die of a heart attack. He died one day, I got a call. He was no longer with us. He was walking back into his office in his church and he fell over dead. Right under a sign that said, finish it. That he would look at from his desk every day. Because he often told me as a son, it's anybody can start stuff. Anybody can start ministries and start things, but finishing, that's what's tough. So he had this cross-pointed, it was a cross-point, cross-point? 
Is that really art? Okay. Cross point thing that said, finish it, that he looked at every single day. And when he died, he was right under it. I don't know if that was intentional or not by God, but his son remembers it. It was cross-stitched by um, his secretary who kept the sign until she died. And now it sits in my office. I'm the younger brother. I took it from my older brother. But it sits in my office, and I get to look at it. When I look into Isaiah... Isaiah has this problem. See, Isaiah is talking to a people who, who had the word and understood supposedly what it said but weren't listening. And he said this to him in the 6th chapter, ninth verse. He said, and go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. A little later in the chapter, in Isaiah 53, Verses 1 to 7, it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who is it that actually has heard from God? Who is it that has seen him? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows. I just think being a man of sorrows in this day and age in America is not looked upon as something of a strength. I'm telling you something. When I got to the hospital yesterday and I embraced my brother, I was in tremendous sorrow. He was in sorrow and we held each other and wept there's strength that comes from that we don't pretend that the sin in this world and the the separation that takes place from godlessness from adam and eve's time the separation that needs to be solved the separation from god the separation from one another this is not pleasant we have to understand that But you can see my demeanor change as I think about God and his solution to it because one day it's over and we win this thing. And there will be no more separation again. Before my mom died, she told me often when I went and visited her, she struggled for many years with strokes and and debilitating things and we walked her through those times. And before she died, many times she told me, Dave, I'm just praying that, that God would... Send his son right now. I'm so tired of this piecemeal leaving. Your dad's gone. I'm going to be gone. You're still going to be here. Rick's going to be here. Why can't we just go at once? My heart would smile at least, and I'd tell Mom, it'll happen. One day God's going to correct these wrongs. See, we were never meant to be separated from each other. When we sinned, that caused the separation from God. And it also sinned, caused the separation from each other. And really, the greatest evil in the world 
is to be separated from God and from each other. And that's why it's painful, and it should be. But see, we don't grieve without hope. We don't grieve without hope. One day that separation is going to be finished for those who love Jesus. There will be no more separation of people. There will be no more separation from God. It will be over. It will be history. Those of us that have understood what the scriptures say, we understand that God himself, Jesus in the flesh, became a man of sorrows. He came to a manger. I mean, he had every... He had every possibility in the world where he could come to. And he came and used Mary, a young virgin girl, who was totally misunderstood. Do you ever wonder why he did what he did the way he did it? I, I do. It's not like I would like to put myself intentionally in places that are harmful in less than I would like. But when God could choose any way, any shape, any form to do something, he chose to come to this young Mary who became pregnant by the Holy Spirit and then had to tell people that really she's a virgin, she got pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Who's going to believe this? Joseph didn't even believe it until God visited him. Do you realize that at least in many Jewish places, that this girl Mary was considered a little slut. Jesus' mom. Do you think Jesus didn't know that that reputation was going to follow her? When they went to Bethlehem, I always wondered, when they go to Bethlehem, and they get there, those are Joseph's relatives there. And there's no room in the inn for a young lady that's going to give birth. Really? Somebody in your family is coming and needs to give birth and you're taking the room? That could happen, I guess, if you were an outcast and nobody wanted you around. So you might get kicked out to the barn. You might have to give birth in a manger. You might not have much to wrap your child in but swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes were the clothes that they kept around them in case somebody died on the journey. It was death clothes that they put Jesus in. Not exactly the picture that we would want to post on Facebook. Why did Jesus come to those circumstances? Why not come in a way that proved to everybody from day one that you were God? Because maybe through the sorrows and the hard times and the impossibilities of life is how God demonstrates himself. Maybe being blessed of God has nothing to do with money and health and comfort, but purpose. In a culture that is really bent on enjoying the emptiness of life, ignorance, actually rules. See, we live in a culture that is trying to make things that are impossible to enjoy, enjoyable. Because God didn't make us to do that. He made us first and foremost to enjoy him. 
And I want to promise this, that if you're not doing that on a regular basis, if you're not enjoying God and spending time with him, the rest of the, the things you try to fulfill your life will be empty. I promise you that. Why? Because you're not doing the very basic thing that God created you to do, is, and that's enjoy him. The second thing he created us to do is enjoy one another. And if you're not in relationships and family relationships and relationships with others, then you're not going to find it in the football game today. You're not going to find it in money, job, fame, fortune. You're not going to find it anywhere except where God says you're going to find it. The world in, in, that we live in, I, I've heard, I, you know, and I don't know where to stand, and I'm not being politically here. I just, you know, there, you know, there's global warming, the world's wearing out. I'm saying, no kidding, we've lived on it a long time. Things wear out. The Bible says the world's going to wear out like a garment. That's what happens when you use something for a long time. I promise you this, God knows how long it needs to last. It's going to last that long. I'm not saying we should be irresponsible or anything. I'm saying we don't need to worry about that. What, what we see is that we have to be careful in our life to not set our goals about being happy and joyful on things that can never deliver the happy and joyful stuff. Look, right now, I want to promise you this, that Rick and Sharon and the kids and Linda and I and we're rejoicing in the fact that Scott was able to look at Karen and say, I love you. We're rejoicing. If you gave me a million dollars today and he couldn't do that, it would be hollow. How many people have lived for the million? It's hollow. Why, well, the million doesn't cause the sorrow that loving somebody causes. I know, get those walls knocked down. Get it into your head that if you're going to love, you're going to be in pain. There is no way around it. So enjoy the love and enjoy the pain. I had a young man come to me once and say, Dave, this is impossible. His, his dad died and he's saying, I, I can't endure this pain. And, and I said, let me, let me ask you, what are your thoughts of your dad? Oh, he's a great dad. Boy, I loved him. And on and on he went. I thought, you are so fortunate. He goes, what do you mean? I said, enjoy your pain. That's the pain of love you just described. Do you know there's some guys that come into my office or talk to me and say, man, that old man of mine, he's dead. It's about time. And they're in pain too, but it's for a whole other reason. Because I promise you, when a dad dies, there's pain. And it's good pain or bad pain, but there's pain. Bad pain always causes destruction. What happens in our culture, though, is we keep thinking that we have to dismiss the sorrow in order to be okay. We don't. When my uh, dad died, um, I'm the younger brother, and I act like a younger brother, and my brother had to take care of a lot of the details. I was with him, but I wasn't going to... I'm a younger brother. And when it came time to view the body of my dad, I, I refused at first. There was no way I was going to go look at his dead body. No way. I'm the baby of the family. I'm not doing this. 
And I was out in the lobby of that funeral home and refusing to go in. And they wanted to open the doors and let people in, and I'm not going in, so they're not doing it until this is settled. So my brother comes out to me. And he lovingly says, get in there. You are going to go look at that. No. I'm a younger brother. I know I'm going to lose this one. So he got me inside. And I remember standing in front of that casket and looking at my father, his body, his lifeless body, something any young man does not want to see. And at that moment, I had the greatest sorrow that a human being can experience. And the greatest joy. They were mixed, and I realized something immediately. Because the Holy Spirit met me right there and kept repeating things in my head. The first thing that said in my head was, he's not there. That's an empty shell. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He's with me. Remember I told you you need to prepare your soil. Weeks before this, I speak and I do different things and teach, and I was obsessed with the idea of death for some reason. I was studying it in the scriptures. I was writing poetry about it. I'm an old football hockey player. Poetry and I just, not something that's normal. But for some reason, I had a guy drive up in my driveway. It was a Sunday morning. I had a guy drive up in my driveway, and uh, his son had just recently died of AIDS. And I was actually taking the garbage out before we went to church, and I looked out, and I saw this car in the driveway, and I went out there, and he was came from Chicago area, so it was a six-hour drive through my driveway. And I went out there, and I looked, and I, I said, Hi, uh, what brings you here? He goes, I don't know. I was just uh, thinking about my son. His son loved our place, Silver Birch Ranch, and, and he was no longer there anymore. And he said, I just started driving this morning, and I ended up here. There's a father grieving over his son. I said, well, you want a cup of coffee? Or No, I'm leaving. No. Weird. There's a guy we were interviewing for a job, and as we were interviewing for one of the positions, he was telling me about the children that he lost to death. I met another friend who was best friends with a good friend of mine as well that was gunned down by a man in the Chicago area and killed. I was so overwhelmed by the death that seemed to be around me and the stories of it that I started to write this poem. Only I couldn't finish it. I put it down and we went to Chicago. We had a board meeting the next Saturday. Camp board meeting, my dad was president the ministry. I sat in the board meeting and I went to church Sunday morning. And I've heard my dad speak a, you know, a billion times. I, I'm the guy that sat in the front and was bored. You know, I mean, he's my dad and I'm listening, but 
I've heard him a lot. And that day I remember as I left the service, I remember thinking, yeah, he's not bad. He's, he's pretty good. And Monday I got the call, he died. As I went back to where my wife was, she was at her in-law's house, her parents, I finished up home. I remember so often thanking God for preparing my heart and preparing me. See, here's what we know. Here's what we know. God knows what the future's bringing for me and for you, and, and he loves us. This heart attack, this thing that happened with Scott did not catch God by surprise. If all are listening to God, then we are prepared for what's to come. I am not saying that it is easy, that we like it, that we are jumping up and down for joy when, when hard things come, but he prepares us for it because he's a loving father. If I could beg you to do anything, it's walk with God in an intimate way because he will prepare you for what's coming up. You may not be prepared otherwise. There are people that go through untold sorrows with no hope and no way to make it through because they have not been prepared even though God wanted to prepare them. They weren't listening. The question really is, what do you do with your sorrows? What do you do with them? You know, some people drown their sorrows. They can't handle being sorrowful. So they go get drunk or drugs or, or go to a movie. Let's go immerse ourselves in the pretend world of somebody else. The one thing they don't do is face them. You know, when I played football, I played football at Wheaton College. I was a defensive end. I know you're thinking you're way too small for that, and I am. But it's a Division three school. That's the best they get. As I played there, I realized something. I, everybody I played against was taller, bigger, stronger than I was, faster. I'm not sure why I played. But I found some out. I found out that, that when somebody's running at me, they're running at me for a reason. And that the best thing I could do is find where the pressure's coming from and run into it. And every time I did that, I got right in the middle of the play. I got so irritating to the opponents that my junior year, I was voted the number one player in the state. Because I just kept breaking up the place. It was that simple. What are you doing? I'm just running into the resistance. Where's the resistance? Over there. Run into it. Why? They're not running at you for no reason. I remember, uh, some of you might remember Reggie White. It may be a bad memory for you Bear fans, but you remember Reggie White as he played for the Packers, and he, he died uh, somewhat early. And, but I remember his last interview, and, and his last interview, the, the guys were talking to him and, and saying, Reggie, this had to get old, man. This had to be old for you. You, you played this position, and everywhere you went, they double-teamed you. They triple-teamed you at times. At times, we counted four guys running at you. How did that make you feel, Reggie? 
And he got that little grin on his face. Like he said, significant. They're going to block me. And they're not going to. You want to see people that are significant in the scripture? How about Job? How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Headed to a furnace. How about Stephen? What would happen if these people decided to take the happy route? Stephen, what a character. Says exactly what God wants him to say. Don't you think that those of us that teach God's word, and if we do say exactly what God wants us to say, we're hoping that the people go, Amen, brother. Stephen said exactly what he was supposed to say. And they stoned him. As he was being stoned, he looked to heaven. And the Bible tells us that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. It's the only place in all of the Bible where Jesus stands. The rest of the time, he's seated on that throne. But he stood. We know that when you stand, you show honor. Can you believe that God Almighty was honoring Stephen? Those stones, I'm sure they still broke bones, and I am sure it was still painful, and I am sure that life was not as sweet as it could be at that moment, physical life. I'm sure that people were still cursing them out in their own religious way. But he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Those people, when all of us people, when we experience sorrow, we try and get rid of it, we're not allowing it to do its work. With uh, Scott and Kara, with my, my brother, my brother's my big brother, he's supposed to take care of me. We had to flip the tables this time. I'm still a younger brother. Things get back to normal. He's got to take care of me still. But I tell you what, as I thought of Scott and I thought of Kara and I thought of that night and that moment, when I heard my brother's voice and the sorrow, the pain, it drove me right where it was supposed to drive me, to the only place I got hope. You could just see my demeanor change immediately. Those without hope, without Christ, cannot say that. There is nowhere to go but the bottle. And it goes away. I want to promise you this, that the experience that Rick is going through this last week will bring you a better pastor. A man who has understood sorrow more, a man who again has been drawn closer to God and understands more of his grace and mercy because he went through 
the resistance and that around it. When there's sorrow in your life, don't drown them. Embrace them. See, sorrow does a couple of things. It either draws you to God or it turns you to repentance. It often turns us to repentance because we do things in our lives that cause sorrow that God didn't want us to do, and those cause sorrow too. So sorrow has a work. It's either going to draw you to God or it's going to draw you to God's repentance. Or you're just going to stay miserable. You see, there are people who, who will exclude God and have excluded God and will continue to exclude God, and they can't figure out why they can never be happy. Because they weren't made to do that. See, today as I speak to you, I am tremendously joyful. I, I know you're saying, you show it real funny. Well, Swedish people, this is how we laugh at jokes. You know, I mean, I am joyful. I'm also still pretty sorrowful. I still feel helpless, but not unhelped. The God of the universe, I believe, has looked down upon Scott and Kara and Rick and Sharon and their family. He knows his purposes and he knows that he could have avoided this in the first place. What we don't know is the plan. We have to trust the character of God. Every human being that has been on this planet will one day not be on this planet. I've often thought it's good that I don't have that assignment that God has, the assignment of telling people, you're done, you're done, you're done, you're done. Here's how. Cancer, you get hit by a truck, heart attack at a bear game. You know, here's how it's going to happen. I'm glad I don't have that assignment. Can you imagine having that assignment, that you have the one, you're the one that determines both life and death? What you have to do is know God. If you don't know him, it becomes random to you. There is no random. You realize in Job, and I would encourage you to go read the book of Job, but in Job, Job was doing great, I think, doing fantastic as far as responding to all the problems and et cetera. He wasn't cursed God. You know, his wife had a little struggle, but he, he was doing fine. Until towards the latter part of the book when God gets on him. And when he gets on him, he gets on him, I think, because Job began to think that God was random. Even though he was okay with it because he's God. I mean, he was okay with God being random. That's the funny part. He was like, God, you know, even though you just obviously just picked me out of somewhere and just decided to beat on me and I'm innocent, you can because you're God and he was okay with that. I think God then three chapters said, oh, Really? Do you know, I want to promise you this. God has never done a random thing in history. Everything that he does is planned. And in the end, he will win. And you either get in line with his plan or you're a loser. That's it. Now, I don't know his plan all the time. You came to me and said, what's the plan here for Scott? I don't know. But here's what I do know. 
It's the same game plan. Go walk with God. Go enjoy the fact that he loves you. You don't know all the pieces of the puzzle yet, but one day he'll flip the cover around and you'll be able to see it. Right now, take the peace he gives you. Realize who he is. Now, look, if you're not walking with God, you don't know who he is, I got no answers for you. Like, because I have no answers for you. You're hoping for random goodness. You're hoping for random things to work out. You're hoping, you're throwing darts, hoping it hits something. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. There's a God. In the beginning, God. There's a God. He created it all. He loves all of you. We need to make it intentional to walk with him and enjoy him. And when we do that, we'll enjoy each other. And when the hard times comes, and they will, when they come, we'll embrace them and say, okay, God, thank you that I could love enough to hurt. Yeah, I can't imagine the day if God ever took my wife from me. I can't imagine that day. I can't imagine that day. I think God right now is saying, I'm not taking her from you today. Relax. Because if I was, I would have prepared you already for it. And I didn't. There's no randomness in God. He knows the day that I am going to die and how I'm going to die. And I promise you, if it's before my wife, he will lovingly prepare her if she's listening. My children, if they're listening, they will be lovingly prepared for it. I'm not saying they will be joyful in their heart over something like that or cheerful or giddy. But they will experience the greatest pain and the greatest joy mixed together. And they will have hope because their hope has never been in medicine or in money, but in God, who, by the way, does not change. We change. He does not. There's a lot of the future I don't know. Just recently, um, we've had some things at camp where there's, we've built some new buildings and we have some engineering issues, and, and really it's not us. We're not engineers. It's some people that engineered things. And it's going to cost us a little bit of money to get this fixed. Immediate questions are, well, what are we... Look, this didn't grab God by surprise. Our job today hasn't changed from what it was yesterday. You know what our job is? To show whoever we deal with who Jesus is in the whole process. That hasn't changed. I had a guy that came up to camp once, and he was... Uh, salesman in a big imprint shirt imprint company and, and he's if you know anything about imprinted shirts it's like you know you can there's a lot of companies out there and he came and said i want you to buy our stuff and i said okay I, I, but i want to talk to you about what we're about first and then i'll buy some from you i mean i want you to hear what we're about and i shared with him before you know it i did this these men's things where men get away and he came on it with me and and I was able to share the gospel with him. And he came and he invited me up to his place where we did some snowmobiling, you know, weekend and just sat and talked about the Bible. And not too long ago, I got a, an email from him where he said, I just wanted to say thank you. Because today I got baptized. He came to know Christ through all that. We weren't buying shirts. We were representing Jesus. You see, 
life isn't about things working out to our benefit so that we're just comfortable and not pushed and sitting in the, the lap of luxury. That's not what it's about. It's about having opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. Rick gets to talk to so many people he would have never met in that hospital about Jesus because his son-in-law is laying in there. Sharon, all the, they get to show who Jesus is to people that they have not ever met before. Scott gets the opportunity. What is your sorrow doing to you? You know, when this is all, when the smoke clears a little bit from where Rick's at, and I guarantee you, you're going to get a better man back even. You're confused about this idea of what sorrow does and joy and sit with him and talk. He's just learned some more. I am not telling you that you can walk around clicking your heels when I hear Christians say about bad things, oh, that's good. I think it's not good. Young man comes to me and tells me his dad died. I, I grab him and go, that stinks, man. Come here, give, me, give you a hug. Ooh, that's not so comforting. No, that's the reality part of it. Here's the comforting part. God, does, God knows what he's doing. The, the fact that you're separated now from him for a while, that stinks. Jesus, before he went to the cross, what happened? He sweat drops of blood. Saying, do I have to go through with this? What were the feelings? Feelings aren't so good here. But feelings don't direct us. Truth directs us. God said, Jesus, you're going to the cross. He said, I'm going to the cross. I don't feel like it, by the way. Physically, I don't feel like it, but I'm going. Why? Because life isn't about my comfort. It's about doing the will of you, the Father. And because of Jesus' faithfulness, I can stand before you today with absolute assurance and hope for the future. He went through sorrow, rejection, crucifixion, misunderstandings, so that I could stand here today and give you hope. Let's not chase sorrow out of our lives. Let's embrace it. I'm not saying there should be a sign outside saying, please, when you come in here, be melancholy. Don't get that. That's not what I said. Let's just let sorrow do its work. And in that process, we will be the most joyous people that people can find. Because sorrow has done its work. It has driven us to God. It drives us to each other. And it causes us to be the people of God in a broken world that are not broken. We're the ones who get to give hope. If you are confused by any of this, if, if you don't have a relationship with God in the first place, that's step one. There's no way you can understand any of this without a relationship with God. And I encourage you, seek out some of the elders here. Talk to my brother when he comes back. Talk to him. Say, I am one angry, upset person like all the time. Help me. Help me understand what it is 
the Apostle Paul, you remember him? I know, i got to quit. I am here. I did so, so many examples. Keep. They come to him and they, they say, well, we'll kill you. He goes, oh, that's good. Oh, we'll keep you alive. Well, that's even better for you. We'll throw you in jail. Good, I'll talk to the guards. Committee meeting. How do we bother this guy? Sorry, you can't. Why? Because you're not in charge of his joy. You could take away his health. You could take away his freedom. You could take away his money. You're still not in charge of his joy. God's in charge of that. What am I in charge of? Getting myself in the position where I can know God. Getting my ground broken up so that it matters when I hear his word. So that my life can be affected. That's what matters. If I'm not doing that, I've got to readjust my life so that I can be in the position where the sorrow in my life is just fuel for the joy rather than something that destroys. Let me pray with you. Father, again, we thank you for this congregation. We thank you for the opportunity this morning to just pour my heart out to them in some areas. We ask that your spirit speak to our hearts. We're thankful for the fact that Rick and Sharon and Josh, Julie, Kara and Scott, their children can look to you during this time knowing that you have a plan. We pray that you continue to heal Scott, that you give many opportunities to all of those that are involved to talk of your faithfulness and demonstrate what it is to walk with you. Give Rick a special patience. Give him the rest he needs as he feel so much responsibility. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.